Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour, the LARB Radio Hour, as it is commonly known. It's a great literary podcast. If you're looking for another literary podcast, check out the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour. Actually, it's a half hour, but they're aspirational. The LARB Radio Hour is a weekly variety show featuring interviews with authors, screenwriters, playwrights. There are book recommendations, amusing analyses of films, television series, and of course, more books. Search for the LARB Radio Hour over at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or find the show on the uh, LARB website, the Los Angeles Review of Books website. They post a new episode every Thursday at lareviewofbooks.org. The LARB Radio Hour, it's a literary podcast. Go and download it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one All person right, and just one Here we go again. This right. is it. This is other people. This is continuing to happen. This is indicative of a larger trend. How's it going out there? What's happening? My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles, and it's very nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Kirsten Valdez Quaid. She has a debut story collection out. It's called Night at the Fiestas, and it was a New York Times notable book of 2015. It is available now in paperback from W.W. W. Norton and Company. I should add, uh, I should hasten to add, that Kirsten back in 2014 was selected by the National Book Foundation as one of five uh, of one of the uh, five under 35. You know what I'm talking about. It's a short list picked by the uh, National Book Foundation or by somebody under the auspices. Uh, auspices? Auspices? You know what I'm talking about. Auspices? <laughs> of the National Book Foundation. Uh, five writers of extraordinary talent and promise under the age of 35. She was one of them. And she and I will be talking in just a moment. So, uh, what happened today? I had a meeting. I had a Hollywood meeting today. I had to go sit down and talk to somebody. There's lots of meetings in uh, Hollywood when you're trying to uh, screenwrite. And I was, I don't know what, I, I don't know what got me thinking about mediocrity, but I was thinking of, it was weird. I was thinking about how mediocre everything is and how most people are mediocre. And yet, you know, it's painful to admit and people want to seem otherwise. 
Almost all of us are mediocre. We're all mediocre in some ways. And uh, true excellence is uh, exceedingly rare in the arts, among human beings generally. Maybe it's mythical. I don't know. But I was just thinking about how pervasive mediocrity is and how in America, uh, especially, we value, we love winners. You know, America loves a winner uh, more than uh, maybe most countries. We love these like super rich people and these like super famous people. And, you know, we lionize this. It's like a cultural value in a way that is probably deeply unhealthy. Not even probably. It is deeply unhealthy. And so I was thinking about that and then I was thinking about the wide middle and I was thinking about mediocrity. And I was thinking about myself <laughs> and I was thinking, uh, in the same breath or in the same mode, I was, uh, pondering, uh, what would happen if I ever did experience Hollywood success. And so I, then I got into like a delusion of grandeur. I was thinking of mediocrity and also having a delusion of grandeur at the same time. And I was uh, telling myself that if I ever got fancy enough to have my own production company, you know how somebody... Uh, like Brad Pitt, his production company is called Plan B Films. And George Clooney's production company is called uh, Smokehouse. And Johnny Knoxville's production company is called Dick House. <laughs> That's true. Um, and you know how, like, you go to see a movie, uh, you go to see, like, a, a Johnny Knoxville movie and the little Dick House logo at the beginning, you know. First, it's like the studio. So, like, Sony Pictures presents. Sony Pictures Classics presents, you know, like Jackass 2. And then uh, the Dick House, you know, logo and the little music or whatever will play. And I was thinking that if I I would, you know, if I ever had my own little production company, maybe I would call it like mediocre films. And yet the music that would play would be like ex extremely uh uplifting, like a soaring musical number and like uh I don't know, something would happen. Rainbows clouds parting, that kind of thing. Is that a good idea? That's what I was thinking about. I even talked about it in the meeting. <laughs> Sitting across from a, a executive, a Hollywood executive, talking about mediocrity. I told him that I wanted to name my production company Mediocre Films. I think I made the sale. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
My guest, uh, once again, is Kirsten Valdez Quaid. Her debut story collection, Night at the Fiesta, is out there now in trade paperback from WW. Is it WW or is it WW? I'm going to say WW, Norton and Company. Uh, I had a very good time talking with her. She came over a little while ago and uh, sat down, and we had a, a discussion. I'm going to share that with you now. Here she is, folks. This is Kirsten Valdez Quaid. I, I was born in New Mexico. I was born in Albuquerque, and my mother's family is from New Mexico and has been there as far back as anybody knows. Um, we we left New Mexico when I was a kid. My dad is a research geologist, so we spent a lot of time following him and his research. And, Where to? Oh, everywhere. I mean, all over the Southwest. We lived in um, Salt Lake City. We lived in a trailer park in Pahrump, Nevada. We lived in Boulder City, Nevada. We lived in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, Tucson, Arizona, um, in tents and various, you know. But the southwestern tableau, like that was the that was where he was doing his work. Basically, we we had a two year stint in Australia, but um, for the most part, it was in the American Southwest. So I was. Uh, Having this itinerant childhood, um, I became very obsessed with this idea of home and where I belonged. And really, Santa Fe was the place we returned to. That's where my grandparents live. Um, so that was, you know, the consistent place. Santa Fe is a beautiful place. It's beautiful, yeah. And it's like, what, what, why am I thinking of topaz? Is that a thing in Santa Fe? What, what's the... What's, turquoise. Turquoise. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> Shows you how much I know. And uh, lots of, like, crystals and candles. Is it that kind of town? I think it is. Um, the, my experience of Santa Fe is, is less of that. Yes. Yeah. Um, my my experience is really connected to my grandmother and grandfather, and you know they're they they're you know old Hispanic. Fam- they've been there for a long long time. So what? So. Are, yeah. What is your ethnicity? Like, what's the origins? My mother's side is um, is Hispanic from northern New Mexico. Okay. Um, and um, my father's side is mixed mutt. Although my dad, who I who I call my dad and who I read about on, at the literary death match in that essay, um, is technically my stepfather. Oh, okay. He he really is my father. So. Okay. And what about biological father? Um, I'm not in contact with him. Oh, you're not. Okay. Yeah. So, um, when you say like northern New Mexico, Hispanic, is that Spain? Like, what what does that mean? Like. It's a little controversial. It is. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's, let's crack it open then. Um, so, yeah, there is this. The, there, there are historically there have been people from there who tra- you know trace their roots back to the conquistadores, as as we can in my family, um, who say that they are Spanish, and um, but. Clearly, they're not exactly Spanish. And there was a lot of um, intermarriage with the Native American populations. Um, I mean, if you if you look... And when you say Native American, you mean Native Americans, or do you just mean like the European settlers of... Oh, no, this the was Native Americans. before the European... The other Europeans. This was you yeah, know, Spanish yeah, yeah. and Native American. Um, and, uh, you know, of the many types of conquests the, the, and violence that the Spanish perpetrated on the region and on the people there. Uh, you know, part of it was um, this religious conversion and also, you know, changing people's names. And so it's 
tricky to actually place it and to know exactly what, you know, exactly what tribes. Um, but it's pretty clear. You know, my grandmother says that her grandmother was just native, you know, that the end, um, and my mother did, you know, National Geographic and do that. Um, I was going to say the blood like, test where you can. Yeah. What about like genealogy.com or whatever? Like, have you ever, what is the, what is that website where you can like trace your origins or. Well, so doing the, by the blood test and it follows the female line and, um, almost immediately it said that we were Native American and, um, and my ex-husband was really obsessed with his own genealogy. And then at a certain point, I think he'd exhausted (laughs) what there was to be found in his genealogy. So he started looking into ours and, um, into my, my family's and is that what did it? You're like, dude, enough already. That was actually pretty interesting because nobody in my family had really done that. Yeah, I don't. And, I don't know either. I should. I feel like I should know more. Everyone should know where they're from, right? Or know more about their ancestry. Of all things, to be like lax on. Most people have no idea. It's it's kind of interesting, but I think there's also this tendency to you know attach maybe too much importance to it. But it is interesting to see where, um, yeah, where people's ideas of their family identity. Um, pan out and where they they turn out to be totally false well but, and also like there's parts of me that's like i don't know if i want to know there could be some dark stuff i mean my family's from the south mm-hmm. i think some of my ancestors might not have done you know the the nicest things so i don't know if i want to know wouldn't you you don't want to know <laughs> i mean i don't know i mean i think there could be a part of me that's like you know grimacing as i find out yeah. you know that uh my great-great-grandfather was a owned human beings or something yeah. like that. I mean, that's a distinct possibility. So that's not fun. It's not fun, but I, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's clear, you know, there is this, this, I look at the older generations and my mother's side of the family, and there is this pride of being Spanish and being, you know, knowing where in Spain, um, the original conquistadors came from, but, there, there isn't much to be proud of in that. I right. mean, they were that's brutal. They were brutal, and um, yeah. So, I mean, that's something I'm interested in: is that kind of history of violence, and and also the the weirdo pride people have in their in their genealogy. Um, so, when my ex husband did this research, there were fairly good records from the Spanish side, and you could, and basically, it looked like generation after generation the Spaniards were marrying Native American women and their names got changed and then that history just immediately was obliterated but um, he did find that um, you know many many generations ago um, it went back to um, Montezuma and Cortez so that, that you're related allegedly I mean, okay. according to this research wow. but so so i think is, <laughs> i think most people yeah, right. <laughs> in the hispanic southwest <laughs> probably are um but you talked about having kind of an itinerant childhood moving around a lot due to your uh, stepdad's uh, what geology professor job mm-hmm. um and wanting a sense of home mm-hmm. i can relate to that um we moved a little bit and now like i'm in los angeles this is not where i was raised but i have that sense of like i want to have a place yeah. I want to have a place that I'm from and that I know, and that's my home. Yeah. And I want that for my kids. Yeah. Um, and so for New Mexico, I mean, that was a place that you weren't, you weren't always there, but your grandparents were from there and you, it was the place that you returned to, correct? It was the place I returned to. Um, I mean, 
I went to eight different elementary schools, and there was also some casual homeschooling in between, and sometimes when your parents we were religious? just out of school. No, no. It's not like the homeschooling Christian thing. No, no. I mean, I think, no, it was the, like, geologists were <laughs> out in the boondocks <laughs> <Yeah>. thing. <laughs> and just, like, like really brainy academics, so, like, we got this. <laughs> Um, so, okay, but you, uh, you went to eight different elementary schools. This is all over the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, were you happy? Did you have siblings or was yeah. it, was it like this lonely, sad thing, you know, where you felt like you didn't have friends? I think it was a little bit of both. Um, my sister, Gratian is five years younger than I am. So there was, you know, kind of an age gap, but we were incredibly close and I adored her. Um, I do think, you know, going to all of these schools, I was kind of a shy kid anyway, which didn't help matters. But, you know, I would just start making friends and feeling like I was building a life and then we'd move on to the next place. And um, and then I, you know, long so desperately for the friends from that previous place. Oh, that's, and that's hard. It is. It is hard. And I do think um, yeah, I'm incredibly jealous of people who grew up in the same house and in the same town and are still good friends with their kindergarten best friend. I, I still wish I could go back and do kindergarten again (laughs) and stay put. Did you ever get pissed off at your parents? It it never occurred to me. Never did. No. You had a good relationship with them. You have a good relationship. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they are incredibly lovely about me using material from our lives, their well, see, life. There's your, that's a, your revenge right there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Grist for the mill. Yeah. And it was just you and your sister? For for a long time. And then um, when I was 12, we moved to Tucson, where my dad got his first position, his which he still has at the University of Arizona. And then suddenly, that's where we were located. Um, oh. And then when I was 14, um, my parents had my little brother. Oh, wow. So there's a, that's a big age gap. It's a huge age gap. And it's very funny because my experience of, you know, being a kid in this family is so different from my brother's. Um, Suddenly, you know, my parents aren't poor and (laughs) they're not moving all the time. Right, right. He got a different ride. Well, and like, I feel like too, when the youngest comes around, you've got some experience at this as parents, but I think you're also a little bit, I feel like the, the youngest kid doesn't get uh, micromanaged quite as much, you know, because, uh, I mean, my, my grandmother had nine kids. I'm figuring by like the eighth or ninth kid, it's just like, you're on your own. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, was there some of that? I mean, your parents were, it doesn't sound like they were very super strict, but. No, they're, they're kind of laissez-faire parents. They, um, although with Emmerich, I think he, because he was so much younger than me and Gratian, he, maybe got more micromanagement. You know, he was like their last shot. (laughs) We got to get this right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One more chance. Um, And in a way he was like an only child. So, well, yeah, you were out of the house by the time he was like, just kind of coming into consciousness. I don't remember anything before I was like four or five years old. (laughs) Uh, Are you guys close now? Very close. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, my, My daughter and son are five years apart. So that's the split. And I'm always like, are they going to be buddies? Are they going to get along? Like, you know, they'll have enough in common, I think. I think so. I think it's a good, good age gap. Okay. Because everybody gets to then, you know, have their own special and yeah. Right. They're not competing for the exact same toys. Exactly. Um, Okay. So Tucson is where you eventually 
kind of put down roots as a family. Mm-hmm. But you were a teenager by then. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, 12, yeah. Okay, so you go to high school in Tucson. I didn't, actually. I went to a boarding school. Oh, where, so where was that? I continued that, that itinerant <laughs> existence. Um, I went to Exeter in New Hampshire. Oh, shit. That's, that's fancy. It was pretty fancy. I was, yeah. What prompted this? Well, um, they the a recruiter came to my my middle school and Pister Middle School and <laughs> in Tucson and it was kind of a rough middle school, um, quite rough. And they they were just they were recruiting. They wanted um, why that kids middle from, school and why in like Tucson, Arizona. I don't exactly know how they started um, going to Tucson. Um, the middle school had a gifted and talented program, um, which required like a two-hour bus ride here and there and back. Um, and so I think that's probably part of what drew them to to Pister. Um, and Pister? Isn't that awful? It just sounds bad. Yeah. Um, it was PMS. <laughs> Pister Middle School. <laughs> bad. Everywhere you cut it. Um, but then, so you get into Exeter. Yeah. And they and that's gave where... me a scholarship and... Um, it was incredibly bizarre to show up there. I was going to say, when, where is it? Where is Exeter? It's in New Hampshire. It's in New Hampshire. Yeah. All right. So you leave your family when you're how old? I was, um, 14. That's early. I always wonder about kids who go to boarding school. Wasn't that like really difficult? I cried every night and finally my mom was like, you, you can't call home anymore crying so long because the phone bell is too high so (laughs) tough enough kid so what was exeter like it was in some ways so incredible it was so incredible i was a really nerdy kid and i you know like i said i'd been to so many different schools and um it was the the education was just astonishing. And for me to be in these tiny classes with other people who were as excited about books as I was and to learn to read books the way, the way they taught us to read. I mean, that, that's like, what did they teach you? Like, you, like when you say that, like they taught us to read books, like just, you mean with a critical mind? Yeah. Reading closely, looking at the line and spending and, and this idea that the line was worthy of discussion and that we could sit in this classroom for an hour, however long the class was and discuss one passage was so thrilling to me. And I remember leaving an English class and walking down the stairs and it was, you know, it's these gorgeous old buildings with marble steps that have been worn down from centuries of, of like students. Titans and, of industry, future titans exactly. of industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Presidents. And the banister was sort of worn kind of honey gold. And, and I remember walking down the stairs and just thinking, I can't believe I'm so lucky that I get to, read these books and talk about these books. And God, you were a nerd. I was such a nerd. <laughs> I was such a nerd. Uh, an incredible nerd. Yeah. It was also a pretty isolating place to be. I mean, I didn't ever, I was there for four years and I never really felt like I belonged. I always felt like I was having to sort of hide the shameful facts of my was, existence. Did you feel class? Oh yeah. You did. Well, and I think the class markers were, I couldn't even read them. Like it was so far beyond anything that I'd ever experienced. Um, so what were they like in retrospect? Can you see where they were? 
Yeah, a little bit. I mean, so there is one, this, I can't believe I'm going to say this, um, and it's being recorded, but I will tell but <laughs> the story. Um, when we lived in Salt Lake City, I we had a 67 Volkswagen van and this really crappy um, little, like, 70s Honda Civic that, you know, and all of our cars always broke down. And this they, was like your your dad was like on a, one of his geology field studies. Well, when we lived in Salt Lake City, he was getting his PhD. So okay. um, we spent quite a bit of time there. And I was so embarrassed by our our cars. And, and, you know, we lived out of our van for many months at a time. We lived in tents many months at a time, trailers. Um, and my friends at school all had these minivans and I wanted a minivan so much. So did I and, when I was a kid. Oh, Why did they I, amazing? I wanted, I wanted my family to have a minivan in a, in a bad way. We got a Ford Aerostar eventually and it was very exciting. I mean, a minivan. You yeah. can fit so many children in it. <laughs> you can fit snacks. Well, we used to see, we used to uh, take like really long family road trips. Like yeah. two day adventures, like crisscrossing the country and... Um, when you're with, you have, we have three kids in my family. When you're packed into a station wagon, you're like, I just want a fucking van. Yeah. A little space. Yeah. So that was, I think, part of why I was excited about it. But I think as a kid, like weird things get you excited. Oh, yeah. Well, and the idea of a car that had radio and air conditioning was so exciting to me. And wow. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because none of our car, our cars were just a wreck. Um, but, I think at one point I had, I was saying, why can't we please get a, a minivan? And my parents said something snobby, like, um, you know, we, if, if we valued those kinds of things, we could, <laughs> you know, take out loans and get a minivan, but we just aren't the kind of people who value those kinds of things. Right. <laughs> and so I sort of had this probably erroneous, cause I know they weren't, I mean, they were on we lived off my dad's graduate student stipend. Like, right. But I'm not sure that was actually accurate. But um, I remember um, I was one of my friends at Exeter my freshman year said something about some guy whose family had an airplane. And she was like, can you believe it that they have an airplane? And, and I said... <laughs> Well, I think my family could probably get an airplane, like, if they valued those kinds of things. <laughs> Listen, if my family wanted a Learjet, we could have a Learjet. We could swing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she looked at me and she was like, no, Kirsten, they couldn't. And But I just had no idea what yeah. what things cost. It's blissful innocence. I mean, it's like I, that kind of stuff... <laughs> The longer I can go keeping my kids shielded from that, there's just plenty of time to know about all those disparities. Uh, but you find out, I guess, you know, in high school, it didn't seem like it, did it knock you back once you realized, or did you realize, or did you sincerely believe that your family could get an airplane? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think if I had thought about it a, even a little bit more, I could have figured out how foolish that was. But yeah, I think what maybe knocked me back more. I mean, it was obvious that I, you know, was getting a lot of financial aid. I had the wrong clothes. We went, my mom took me to the fashion bug. What is a fashion bug? Oh, you don't even know. No. Wow. No. Um, <laughs> it's a discount clothing store. Okay. It, it was in a strip mall in Tucson. Okay. So um, that might be a Southwest thing. We didn't have, we had a, what did we have in Indiana? I mean, there were similar things. I was never big into clothes, but you know, <laughs> there were malls discount stores you know what is it tj maxx 
It was like a smaller, crappier TJ Maxx. Because okay. at TJ Maxx, I mean, can't people get... You, you can know? find a deal. Yeah, yeah. I've, no. I've heard of like... Like every once in a while, uh, you know, there'd be some designer thing on the rack that like got discarded, but like the zipper was broken or... I think that's what TJ Maxx gets. Yeah, you wouldn't find anything like that at Fashion Bug. <laughs> but what you could find at Fashion Bug, which I did find, was... Um, some mock turtlenecks and like jewel tones and um so i got four of those and um some nice high-waisted jeans actually <laughs> i my outfits would be perfect for now um yeah and then i took them you were to ahead of school. your time i was i was real but wasn't a wasn't exeter a uniform no oh. no uniform you did have to men boys had to wear um ties and jackets and girls had to wear, if you wore jeans, you had to wear a blazer. Okay. And I had this, like, really thick purple, like, boiled wool thing. It was atrocious. Oh, my God. Yeah. A blazer. A blazer. That seems like an odd request for for females. I don't know. I guess so we looked like little young professionals. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> little, I don't know. It's almost like a pantsuit or something. You know? Maybe they're asking for that now. But... Um, Overall, you you got a great education. A wonderful education. Did you, you made you made some friends. Mm-hmm. Wasn't like a horrible time. It wasn't. Did no. anything super dark happen? Like you hear about boarding school stories, but dark things were happening that I heard of, um, but I no, nothing really dark to me. It right. was just this sort of low grade sense of alienation. <laughs> but who who goes through high school and doesn't feel that? Right, right. So, but it's a great opportunity. I mean, you know, this is one of the things about boarding schools and private schools and this country. Um, increasingly, it just feels like there's two systems mm-hmm. of education. It's like for there's one system for the haves, there's one system for the have-nots, and the quality difference is significant. It Dri- is. It drives me crazy. <laughs> No, it's it's incredibly it's incredibly outrageously unfair. And um yeah, and there are, you know, a few people like me who got sort of plucked out and set into this place and it it changed my life. I mean, it changed my life. It changed my prospects for college. It you know, cuz I just didn't know what was possible. I mean, for being a professor, my dad is fairly clueless about academia um you know he's he's he knows a lot about geosciences and, <laughs> and, um so i didn't know that you know it was possible to go to private colleges that you know that such, i didn't know financial aid was a thing i mean i remember when i was applying to colleges um i had stanford on my list and my dad said i don't think you should apply there i think if you get in you're going to be really disappointed because we can't afford it. There's just no way. And and it was only because friends at Exeter who said, oh, no, you know, financial aid exists. Yeah. Um, and you got some. Mm-hmm. You got in. Where did you apply? I'm just curious. Like, coming out of Exeter, did you just apply to all the Ivies and the big... I didn't apply to um, Ivies. I applied... Well, I'll tell you what I did, actually. My friend, who is two years older than me, just gave me her college list. And she had been able to go on, you know, the college tour and visit campuses. And she just told me, this is where you want to go. Yeah. I I think you'd like this campus, Uh, you know, go there. Good weather. (laughs) Stanford's a beautiful campus. 
It's so beautiful, yeah. So you showed up there and had a good experience there as well? Wonderful. Were yeah. you already, um, it sounds like you were in high school, you were already kind of like leaning towards books and writing. Mm-hmm. It was an early thing for you. So did you show up at Stanford on day one, like, this is what I'm going to do? Sort of, yeah, pretty much. I, I took a class my freshman fall with John LaRue, um, is a wonderful writer and teacher and writer about literature um, on the American short story. And I mean, it was seems like so it worked. Thrilling. It was thrilling. What did you learn in that class that um, helped you? Oh, God, he did this thing um, where he would take we had to write an essay about every week about whatever stories we had read. And he would take lines from our work, um, from our essays and that had bad writing in them. And then he'd compile them onto a sheet and we would go around and just talk about what was wrong with each of these sentences. And there was, a <laughs> there was no small dose of disdain <laughs> in his voice yeah. when we went around. But and- was it funny? It sounds like it could have been funny. I guess unless it's unless it's your line. It was funny <laughs> and mortifying, and um, and I, yeah, and I remember every day I'd, he'd pass it out, and I'd be like, "Please don't let one of my sentences be on this, please, please, please." And I've tried doing the same assignment with my students, and they just mutinied. They were not having it. They thought that I was shaming them. No, but and, see, the, I, kids <laughs> these days, I feel like kids these days are getting softer and softer and it's like toughen up. And, and I also was going to say that, uh, like being mortified or feeling ashamed is a good motivator. Like one of the best things that ever happened to me in my, um, school years, you know, with writing was like submitting a short story to workshop and having everybody in the class just be like, this is not good. Yeah. And I mean, in, in emphatic terms and having that horrible feeling and not wanting to repeat it. Yeah. And I didn't I'm like, thank God I had that experience. Yeah. It was instructive. It kind of sears, you know, it worked for me anyway. And it wasn't like they were cruel. They were just like, Hey, I don't like this. And here's why. And they were right. And does that feeling stay with you as you work? I mean, not, not like in some sort of like really like toxic way, but it was just a lesson in learned. In a helpful way. Yeah, it's a lesson learned. Yeah. I mean, it's good It's good teaching. I mean, I think sometimes um, the tendency can be to want to use kid gloves. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of coddling that can go on in certain workshop environments where people are scared to be critical. And, they, mm-hmm. you know, and then, like, the praise gets, like, way out of hand where you're, like, you know, someone's, like, it's, like, the first short story they ever wrote. And people are, like, drawing <laughs> comparisons to, like, Nabokov or, you know, like, what the fuck, you know. So I think that, you know. Trying to be honest without being cruel is most helpful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you you know, you know, talk about, like, breaking things down to the line mm-hmm. and just sitting there and stewing over one line and being able to spend an hour talking about one line. You can learn a hell of a lot from one bad line. Oh, yeah. And you can learn, you can learn a lot, I think, from uh, your own mistakes, but also from looking at the mistakes of others. Oh, definitely. So, I don't know. That seems like a good exercise to me. But you can't do that these days as a teacher. Well, I... I... I edited my my list, and so I now use sentences from past students. So then, as a group, we can all chuckle over how <laughs> terrible the work is of these silly past students. But of course, nobody clearly, at this table yeah, would, would commit this error. Um, so okay, so you're at Stanford. This guy, um, you know, is teaching you short stories. You immediately gravitate towards the short story format. Is that your is that your thing, or do you novels as well? 
I'm working on a novel now, um, and and I love novels. I, I love short stories and novels. Okay. And, um, I I hope I won't have just one thing. I hope that. What about a memoir? Who knows? Possibly. 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 Journalism. I haven't done any journalism. But I mean, do you have like a, a do you have like a, a desire? Less of a burning desire, but every once in a while, I'll I'll think, huh, that that would be really fun. I feel and, like you could write a memoir. Like you've had an interesting life. I've thought about it. I mean, I, I, I read a piece at the Literary Deathmatch, which was a memoir um, yeah. about collecting kangaroo skulls with my dad. And well, see? And it went over like you, you won the deathmatch. I, I won the deathmatch. Maybe so that's maybe, a sign. Maybe I'll just <laughs> write a memoir about roadkill. So when did you, like in that class, was that when you wrote your first story? I'd written, actually it wasn't a creative writing class. It was it was just oh, it was like, okay, yes. a close reading class on, on the short story. Um I'd written stories in, in high school a bit, but the first workshop I had was at Stanford. Yeah. How did it go? It was thrilling. I was, I was incredibly afraid to sign up for it. Um, and finally I did. And it was wonderful. I'm, I'm still in touch with people. Anybody published? Like yeah. any, like people in that class that went on to publish? Mm -hmm. Can you name names? I can name names. Um, it's not a bad thing to say. No, not at all. Um, Michael Copperman, uh, Lisa Rosenbaum, Lucy Flood, all, all in that class. Wow. Yeah. And did you distinguish yourself from the start? Because, like, you look at the success that your uh, collection has had, like, high praise, 535, award-winning. Like, a lot of good things have kind of rained down on you in the uh, wake of the publication. And you have talent. Well, thank you. Right? I mean, th that's what I think these things confirm to a degree you know as they're kind of like a nudge like keep going that's how i think people often receive that kind of thing um and i'm always curious like did you know when you were sitting in that first workshop based on the work that you were putting forward that you had um a gift for it or was it something that like maybe wasn't there but you wanted it to be there and so you worked that much harder like how did it how did it go I think there were pieces from those stories that I felt really proud of and um, and that went over well in class. I think, in general, they weren't good stories, and I was by no means the strongest writer in that those early workshops, by no means. Um, I think the great thing about those workshops is that... Um, and the fact that I got to be good friends with the other people in, in my class um, was that I, I wanted to entertain these people. And so I I had an audience and they had faces and names and were specific people. And so I was trying to entertain them. Yeah, and, no, and but that's, a, them. that's a really important word that people, I think, sometimes overlook when it comes to writing fiction is like you you are trying to entertain people even mm -hmm. if you have something really high-minded to say or there's some sort of like you know uh, philosophical argument embedded in your narrative that mm -hmm. you know is incredibly difficult to mine but if you get it you know you still have to entertain people otherwise no one's going to want to read your stuff i mean that's what i look for when i pick up a book i, mm. I want to be entertained right. and not that it needs to be like a light romp, right. you know, although I don't mind a light romp. Right. <laughs> but, We're approaching summer. It's a light romp uh, reading season. But when you talk about a short story 
um, or any work of, uh, of uh, fiction or nonfiction, um, but particularly with a short story, uh, since that's what, you know, that's what you've published so far, what makes it work? What makes a story work? Do you have an answer for that? What makes a good short story? Like, what does it need? God, that is such a good question. And probably the hardest question I've yeah. been asked. Um, <laughs> I mean, what makes it work? I think, um, you know, at the very, you know, most basic level, you have to make the reader feel something. Um, I think there is, in my favorite stories, there's the sense that it continues beyond the the confines of the story itself, the sense that those characters still exist in the world and are living their lives in a way. Even if, um, you know, as in A Good Man is Hard to Find, they end up shot. That, that, that in some way, the grandmother is always looking at that gun and always being shocked that it just keeps going. So when you, when you sit down to write a story, is there, uh, are there any consistencies? Like, do you always start with a character? Do you always start with a word or a phrase or a title or an image? Like, or does it differ from story to story? I think it's with a character and, and a situation or a character and a, slight sense of a situation and I'm just writing to figure out who this character is and what this situation is and what it means. I think the only consistent thing is that I don't really know where it's going and the process is just following that character and and just observing closely yeah. and seeing what that character is offering me up and then trying to pick up on it and, and push forward that's incredibly inarticulate but um no, i got you and like these characters like do they come from uh your life experience or are you somebody like it's like an amalgam of little bits and pieces and then some pure invention or are you somebody like because i know some people it's like pretty much a one-for-one -one person to page with some embellishments or whatever like how do you how do you draw these characters like how do they come to you in the first place it's definitely not one-to-one. -one. I mean, these, they're, they're, it's all an amalgam. It's all, you know... That's what they all say. It's true, though, in my case. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's picking up little bits, adding, you know, piecing things together. It's... They are these sort of Frankensteins. And I'm sure that there are people in my life who could say, oh, this, this person shares some traits with me. But um, really, they... By the time it's published, um, they actually aren't at all. <laughs> the characters are not at all the people who even I may have started with. Um, and often it's more of the situations, the little situations that I'll, I'll use and then tweak and, and extend and make more dramatic. Um, and then what about revisions? Like how many, how many drafts are you taking a story through? How much, how much are like, if you're following these characters, like, how, how often do they lead you astray where it's like they take you down a net, you know, a road that actually doesn't work. And so you start back where you were. Uh, so many times. I mean, I can't even actually count drafts. Um, when I do something, when I decide I'm going to change something dramatically, I'll, you know, open a new document and redate it and go from there. Um, but 
you know, none of it's never so clean as having a new draft. Um, and maybe that's because now most people write on computers, so yeah, we can, just can constantly right. be tweaking and changing. But my, the stories take years, years and years, and I frequently am led astray. So one story in my collection um, is called Ordinary Sins, and I started that story because I had been thinking about this case of a murdered priest and you know as a catholic i'm i'm interested in are you practicing catholic <laughs> um not not too practicing okay <laughs> i was raised catholic so are you practicing no <laughs> um so i had this idea about a murdered priest and you know what it might mean to the community and so i was like great i'm gonna write a story about a murder and it's a murdered priest it's gonna be exciting you know i never write about a murder um all those people who say my stories are slow like this is gonna be electrifying yeah they're gonna be amazed by this so i wrote this whole story and this was when i was at stanford for the stegner and so you went yeah you went to stanford for undergrad and then also went on to do your graduate study there right or is that or is it i did my i i after I graduated, I was just out in the world for several years. Then I did my MFA at University of Oregon ah, and okay. then um, went from there to back to Stanford. The Stegner Fellow, the coveted Stegner Fellowship. That's yeah. nice, right? Oh, it was a dream come true. It was yeah. amazing. You, yeah. Like you never want to leave. I, I did my best not to. Yeah, right? You're like, I would still be there. <laughs> Those people would keep paying me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I wrote this. I started this story about um, this murdered priest and... I turned it into workshop and people were like, yeah, you know, maybe there's something here, but it's not working. The, the murder doesn't work. Like you, the priest shows up dead and then you never deal with it and seem totally uninterested in it. And about a year passed, I, I would go back at it at the, go back to the story and look at it and didn't really know where to take it. And then finally I realized, oh no, I can't have the priest die. Like the, the, the whole first half of the story is about the relationship between this young woman who's pregnant with twins and unmarried who works in the parish office and her relationship with the priest. And that was all the interesting material. Um, the murder actually wasn't very interesting, although I thought I had a great description of his dead body. But Well, you never know. You Maybe you can use it again sometime. I'm planning on it so no <laughs> one can steal it. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's like it's, it strikes me not just in talking to you, but in talking to a lot of people who've done this show that like so much of success in writing is having the patience and the willingness to continue to put the energy in, even when you're not getting returns mm -hmm. that are really tangible, mm -hmm. um, being willing to sit with that uncertainty and to just kind of keep going back and wrestling with it, keep going back and looking at it, being open to the criticism that you get from a reader or a workshop or, yeah. you know, a lot of people are just like, out oh, of hell with this. You're spending years on a single story, correct? Yeah, I mean, I could have gotten a medical degree in the time <laughs> it took to write one of those stories. Why did I not get a medical degree? Why did I not? Such an easier, like, more linear. You just kind of you know how that's going to go. The writing life feels like a lot less uh, defined. Yeah, and I think, I mean, what you say about uncertainty is so true and it's uncertainty in both the path that you take because you know a good thing can happen and then nothing good can happen for years and years and years right. and then you know you, you just have no idea um it's not like if you're you know a, 
doctor or an accountant, like if you basically show up, like you'll be okay. You're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and there's also like a certain kind of esteem that is conferred by like having that degree. Mm-hmm. You're like, a, you're like a valuable member of society then. Whereas if you're like, I got a short story collection, I guess some people do. I mean, people do, I think, respond well to writers. If you have a published book, that's a good thing, but it's not quite the same as being like doctor. Though, are, are you going to get your PhD? No, no. You're not. Okay. No. I was going to say, you, you, it's still possible. I know, guess it is. Technically. I yeah. I, I always thought, you know, because I very consciously decided I had to start calling myself a writer when people asked what I did, because that was important to me to feel the permission to do it, because I didn't feel permission for a long time. And so I would say, I'm a writer. And people would say, well, have you published anything? And I'd be like, well, you know, like a couple of stories. Um, and then they'd, you know, kind of roll their eyes. And then when my book came out, I thought, oh, good. Now, now. <laughs> I'm a writer. Here, I'm look. a writer. <laughs> yeah. And they'd be like, well, have I heard of it? And I'd be like, I don't know. You know, and then you know what roll- I say? You know what I say to that question? <laughs> Name me five books published this year. <laughs> Most people couldn't even get two. Really? I mean, yeah. unless you're in this like small pool of like 10,000 people in America who pay attention um, consistently, you know, it's like people know like the one or two or three or four or five books, especially from the like the quote unquote literary realm. There's a, there's the breakout books, you know, we can always like point to them like uh, a little life, mm-hmm. you know, that's a book that like has somehow made its way out into the wider culture and that everyone's talking about, but it's a rare case. And uh, I don't think there are very many friends of mine who could sit down and name me books that were published this year. Maybe I'm not hanging out with the right crowd. <laughs> Maybe if I'd gone to Stanford, it would be different. But um, I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I'm gonna steal that. Yeah, just like as a retort, it's good. Yeah, because it puts them on the spot. Yeah. Um, so okay, so you call yourself a writer once you've got the book published. Is that when the pivot happened? No, I think I think it was. Um, probably in the second year of the Stegner. For the first year of the Stegner, I was really yeah. trying to call myself a writer. Once you get a Stegner, you're like, I'm a writer. That, really? That's, that, yeah, that's validating. I mean, at least you know it should be. It felt validating, but it's, it was very hard for me to call myself a writer. Did it put any good pressure on you, though? Because I think sometimes it, it creates a situation of accountability once you're mm-hmm. like on the record. Because then it's like, okay, if I'm a writer and I don't publish anything now, now I've told everybody. That can be kind of like a good motivator. Yeah, well, if I say I'm a writer and don't write then (laughs) yeah yeah i think sometimes people withhold that because they don't want that pressure yeah i think it's actually a good thing that's a good point within reason you know i mean i don't know i I told people early that i was working on a novel and then like spent like seven or eight years you know failing at it every christmas i would go home and my uncle in the south would be like how's that book (laughs) you're just like oh shit but it keeps you going yeah you know uh, I think that's where we started talking about shame as a motivator. Us Catholics. That's the main motivator. That's, yeah, it's the have. one. It's yeah. the one. So how do you know when a story is done? You know, you spend all this time on it. Uh, it just gives an intuitive sense. Like, I've done as much as I can do. If I keep messing with it, I'm going to mess it up. You know, I think I just, you know, hang on to it and hang on to it and hang on to it. And then, and I do, you know, once I've gotten as far as I can get it, I'll give it to one of a handful of readers and then um who are they like just friends from school yeah 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 you guys trade work yeah other writers i I how how many like four or five probably 
three or four. Yeah. yeah. You don't need many. You don't need many. You just need good ones. Just or just like one good one. Yeah. Even. Somebody who understands your stuff and can give you like like unvarnished feedback. Yeah. Um, has like any have any of those writers ever made a contribution, like a key contribution to a story, where without their insight, it would have been significantly weaker. Oh, I think every one of my readers, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I really depend on my readers. I I don't know that I'm always a great editor of my own work. Um, I I I can get a story, and because I I always hold on to stories and work and work and work on them before anyone ever sees them, they can be fairly polished by the time I show them to a reader, but. The flip side is that I sometimes lose sight of possibility, you know, that there are things that could shift. And it, it's weird how it's how hard it can be to see your own work. The amount of time you spend with it, you think you would know every nook and cranny. Oh, yeah. And then you show it to somebody and they read it cold and they're just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> they just point to this thing. And, and then it's, you know, I always I often find that a really good note is self-evident. Mm-hmm. Somebody tells it to you and you're like, oh, yeah. And then you feel this like it's like this mixture of like shame. Like, how did I not see that? And then, like, great relief. Like, thank you for saving me. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, is that the case for you? Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, and then another way I depend on readers is for cutting because my stories tend to be really long in the first, in early, earlier versions. And I don't know what to cut. I lose sight of what's important and what, what isn't. tell me what to do. Just... Tell me what to do. That's all I want. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. Is it like, as, as, individu- as much individuality we ascribe to authors you know the sole artist mm-hmm. it's really not the case um i guess there are certain writers who really work in isolation who did i talk to or i was reading an interview with somebody it was like an editor like a high editor um a high editor you know what i mean yeah. a high ranking editor yeah. <laughs> he was not a neighbor he's just a really <laughs> high <laughs> editor he was so fucked up <laughs> um but he was talking about how rarely a manuscript comes in that he doesn't have to do anything to. I mean, mm-hmm. like it's like Haley's Comet, but Don DeLillo had a book like that. Oh, really? Like, yeah, it was like Mao too. It was just like here, it was mm-hmm. done. And I want to say Jonathan Franzen had a book or two like that. Um, I think that writers, once they've sold enough copies or won enough awards, that sometimes gets hard to be edited because you know what I'm saying. It's like don't mess with me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I think that's when I would really want to be Exactly. <laughs> it can be a dangerous set of yeah. circumstances. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like, it usually is a case where there's at least three or four people who are involved in a significant way in the composition of the book, but the writer who does the vast majority of the work mm-hmm. gets the glory. And I guess that's why they have acknowledgement sections. <laughs> yeah, and my acknowledgement section is like practically as long as... One of your stories. stories. (laughs) In fact, you should have had them read that. So you could have cut it down a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So do you like when you spend all this time and you have all these like false starts and false summits, you think you're close to the end, but then you realize it's all wrong. You have to tear down stuff and build it back up again. It it takes an emotional toll. That's Mm -hmm. a bit of, it's always a bit of a ride, you know, to write something, whether it's a short story or a novel or a memoir or whatever. Like, what keeps you going? Like, why do you spend, like, why do you continue to sit down and work on this? Because we all know that short stories don't tend to earn people a lot of money or uh, notoriety. I mean, in the rare ends, I mean, yours has done exceptionally well uh, within that realm. But, like, what drives you? 
You know, I think the thing that really drives me and sort of the, the high that I'm always seeking is the feeling when I'm working of total immersion, when I lose track of myself and the sort of boundaries of my own body and mind dissolve and I'm in the story and it doesn't happen all the time. It, ha it hasn't happened much recently, alas. Um, but that kind of total immersion is what, what I love and what I'm seeking and what I hope for every time I sit down. How many words, like in a good session, how many words are you getting down in a, in a day and how many hours do you work? Gosh, I, you know, it's so variable. It's so variable. Um, I'm, I'm a, I, I'm a little bit of a fearful writer. I, it takes me a long time to, you know, to sit down. Every time I sit down, I think it's going to be terrible and I immediately spiral. And we have that in common. Do you do that too? Yeah. There's a lot of warm up and just like trying to get myself into it. I have to reread what I've previously written. I'll sometimes sit down and reread the whole book. Yeah. Like I'm deep into a novel right now and I'll just spend like, like three hours of reading just to get like the voice back and like to get myself oriented. Uh, I'm very slow or at least I have been with this book. That's incredibly heartening to hear <laughs> because okay, <good. laughs> then, then I start thinking, what am I doing? I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting my time. It's taken, you know, I've been reading this thing for three hours and I'm not working. And then I feel guilty about that. And, um, yeah. You, and one thing I've come to, and I tell my students this, that we do get better. We get better. And one way I've gotten better over the years is I'm just more aware of my process and how, you know, inefficient and fucked up it is. And also just more accepting of it. And I mean, there was a time when it about a period of about a year when I would sit down and it would be so terrifying and uncomfortable and I'd immediately, you know, spiral out of, you know, I, in my mind, I, you know, will have wasted my entire life and I'd be living in this dank basement apartment with, you know, no friends and no love and nothing. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and this all happens within the first, like, maybe minute and a half of sitting in the chair. And it was so uncomfortable for the first hour that I would just get up. I'd be like, okay, I've done it. And eventually, and it was only by actually keeping a log as I wrote. So every time I felt hungry, I would say, I feel hungry. Every time I felt like I had to pee, I'd say, I have to pee. You know, I'd just actually record what was going on in my mind. And it became clear that actually the first hour was always hell. It was always miserable. And after you should that, make a poem out of that in. log. You should use some of that log as like a poem. <laughs> yeah, I should. <laughs> you know, who from my past do I feel like Googling? I would just write all of it down. And and then I was like, oh, yeah, the first hour sucks. And then it was okay because I'd feel those horrible feelings and I'd be like, well, you know, I'm still only 47 minutes in. Yeah. It'll get better. I've got like 13 minutes left. Yeah. And it's going to get better. And it does. But, you know, that's what I think that's really what when you talk about getting better as a writer – I think maybe it's just you, you just have those experiences over and over again and you learn to weather them better. It's not necessarily that facing the blank page ever gets any easier. You finish a book and then you go to start a new one. It's not like the new one flies out of you twice as fast because you wrote the, the, the yeah. previous one. 
It's more that you're just like, oh, yeah, this is how it goes. I've been there, done that. I know that I'm going to weather this. It's like a confidence that you develop mm -hmm. that like as crazy as it seems, as lost as you feel, as slowly as the words are coming, if at all, if you just keep sitting down, eventually it's going to happen. One hopes. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I think that's true. And even just feeling like eventually it will happen is, is heartening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how far now you're working on a novel now? I am. Yeah. How far along? It's hard to tell. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm almost through this first draft. Um, but because I'm sort of writing it in the same inefficient, convoluted way that I write my stories, except that it is, you know, 15 times longer. Right. So 15 <laughs> times as convoluted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's sort of hard to tell, but I, I'm, I think I'm, I see the light at the end of the tunnel that's a good of place the first to be. draft. That's it. But that's a good place to be. The first draft is the hardest draft to get down. Yeah. Do you, do you like, uh, are you somebody who writes fairly carefully in a first draft or do you, are you pretty permissive with yourself? With my stories? Definitely. I wrote carefully. Um, I tried to give myself some more flexibility in the novel and, you know, you always hear people talk about the shitty first draft and just get it out. And I tried that and I don't think that works for me. me I think when it's, when the writing's too shitty, I don't care about it. Right. And I don't care about the characters. It's like a weird, I, I was like, um, compare it to like a tightrope walk. You know, you want to be permissive in the sense that you don't want to be so self-critical that you stifle mm -hmm. any kind of productivity because you're scared to make a mistake. But if you're too permissive and it's like, oh, it's just the shitty first draft, you're just going to write a big pile of shit. Yeah. And you're going to have to go back and just like completely start over. It doesn't make any sense to me doesn't to me either. And when you said that thing about the tightrope walk, I think it's such a good metaphor because you actually do have to take each step carefully yeah. to, <laughs> to get across. And you're, no matter what, you're going to have to, I mean, tear stuff down and you're going to find your mistakes and mm -hmm. it's going to be there. But I think I, for me, it's like, just try your best every time. That's what it's about. Like you don't have to be perfect, but try your best. Yeah. And I think the shitty first draft, it's like, oh, I can be at half speed. As long as I get the words down, as long as my fingers are moving on the keyboard, but I don't think that works for me. Not for me either, because I, I feel like the thinking then gets shitty in half speed and, but, and my engagement with the characters. Okay. So the, I think we're kind of similar and I wanted to ask you about this because this has been bothering me is that I'm a pretty cerebral writer. Like it's really deep thinking. And I think the kind of reading that I like to do most is I like, I like to feel like I'm in the hands of somebody who is slowing down time and who is looking really mm -hmm. carefully. Like there's, I love being in the hands of a writer who's like really looking. Yeah. Just a powerful observation. Um, and I think you have to be a slow writer to do that unless you're just a stone cold genius or something. But, yeah. um, it just seems like inherently something that happens slowly because it's like meditative. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that there is a kind of writing that happens more quickly and that might happen at the hands of people who do write shitty first drafts where they're just like more in the moment. It's more of a flow. Mm -hmm. It pours out of them. They can, they have to go back and edit and fix it later, but it's like that spigot opens up more easily for them. Do you ever feel like that? Like maybe I'm too restrained or I'm too, you know, tied up in knots within myself. Uh, and I wish that I could be more of an, like an open, spigot <laughs> i think yeah certainly and when the writing's going badly i certainly feel that way because i i keep thinking is this good is this you know and um and i think that's why i i love that feeling of immersion because that's when 
you know, my stupid self just disappears and I'm not me, a person sitting there. It's just, I become, I'm just, I dissolve into the, the story I'm trying to tell. And, um, and then I am able to capture that kind of propulsion. And like, yeah. are there specific parts of a book that lend, lend themselves more easily to that sort of immersion? Like when you're writing like dialogue or when you're writing like a really heavy action scene or I don't know. You know, I don't know that I, that one part, one type of writing more than another. I, and I don't know what it is because if I knew what it was, then I could but capture do, it more. Do you, do you, in that mode, do you ever have like, like hugely manic output where you're like, holy shit, I just wrote 10,000 words in an hour, like something crazy like that or no? I wish to God I okay. would. I was going to hate you. If, if I would you love yes. some mania. <laughs> no. I know, me too. <laughs> I need more. I need more mania. Um, so the difference between writing a novel and writing short stories. Novels are very long, and it's a lot to sort of hold in my mind. Is it harder for you? You know, I can't tell. Right now, because I'm in the middle of it, it feels harder. But um, I was at a residency last summer, and my dad called, and he'd been traveling and um, didn't have much cell access. So I I picked up when he called, even though I was in the middle of writing. And um, he asked how the writing was going, and I said, ugh, it's horrible. And I don't know what I'm doing. It's just a mess. Where were you? I was at McDowell. Okay. Where is that? It's in New Hampshire. And okay. this really, it's just heaven. I mean, oh. it's true heaven. Um, and my dad said, you always say it's going horribly. And I thought about it and I was like, maybe I do. Maybe it actually always feels like it's not going it's well. It's a good sign. And yeah, so maybe I just have to trust that eventually I'll make something well, <laughs> out have, of it. But I mean, that's the thing. It's like, when you think about people who are able to do this, at some point it's instinct. You have good instincts. You have the work ethic or whatever it is that keeps people going back <laughs> mm-hmm. and like putting themselves, you know, through this on a daily basis. Um, and then other, and then I think the other big piece of it is that you must, are you a big reader? And I hope you'll be really honest with me because I think there are writers who are truly big readers and then there are writers who aren't and they can both be good writers. Yeah. Um, but are you somebody, I think that like, it's harder to sustain oneself across many books in a long career without really having a habit of deep reading, which is a place that I need to get better. I love reading and I would almost always rather be reading whatever book I'm reading than writing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love reading. I'm not a fast reader at all. Um, so you're not like a book a week person. If I mean, I can be. You can. I be. can be, but um, it, you know, I don't. I can't. I have friends who just can tear through books, and and I'm not fast. Um, but I I do. I I love it. I love reading, um, and I find it incredibly inspiring because I'll see read something I admire, and they'll think that's what I need to do in my novel, and yeah. then I'll try to do that thing and you know <laughs> but, yeah. but you'll put your own stamp on it but the the lesson is that input equals output like yeah. you know who was saying uh i was on a panel during awp and one of the guys like was quoting chris rock uh and he was like of all people i mean i you know chris rock is a genius but in the literary context but he said something that totally applies um he was like there's no such thing as writer's block there's reader's block yeah oh that's interesting so if you can't write go read yeah that makes sense to me yeah no, it's, it is. And, you know, when you read a book, a, a good book, um, 
you know, it has that sense of ease. And if, if I'm not feeling that ease in my own writing, sometimes reading somebody else's ease, ease even though, you know, it probably took that person a lot of hard writing to well, get that well, sense of ease. Say, easy, easy reading is hard writing. Exactly. And if you yeah. read a book where it's like too much work, then the author didn't do his or her job. Yeah. Like at least to, they didn't finish, you know, um, you've got a, I think if, if stuff, if a book re- like reads really clearly, like I'm, I'm a huge fan of, especially when you're dealing with something complex or like the narrative is super complex. I always found myself like in deep admiration of like super clear books mm-hmm. about super complicated things mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like that's a ton of work. A huge amount of work. Yeah. So, um, do you know, uh, or would you be willing to reveal anything about the novel? Like what is it set in New Mexico? Are you going back there? Yeah, it is set in New Mexico. Um, I, I won't talk too much about it, but um, it's it centers on a family, and you know, a, a the dad's a geologist. Not, not always entirely <laughs> functional family. The dad is not a geologist. There's no geologist in okay. the whole book. Okay, um, but maybe I'll throw one in for spice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's a family story. It's a family story. It's um, yeah, in northern New Mexico. And you're teaching. I am, yeah. Right now I'm teaching at Warren Wilson, a low residency program, and then um, in the fall I'll start at Princeton. You're moving up there? Like mm-hmm. you're on campus? Mm-hmm. That's a good gig. Yeah, I'm That's excited pres- for it. prestigious. Princeton University? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a little intimidated by all my new colleagues. I mean, yeah, it was like Tony Morrison. <laughs> Tony Morrison, Joyce Carol Oates, Jeffrey Genides, Jim Palahiri. You'll fit right so, in. Yeah, exactly. I'll <laughs> How did you land that? Um, I... They they had an opening um, last last year and you just applied. Mm-hmm. Like, what do they list that online? Yeah, they have they have an op- You know, they they all the creative writing jobs get posted and um, yeah. And I actually didn't. Um, I I saw Chang Ray Lee. He came to read at University of Michigan where I was teaching, and he encouraged me to apply. Wow. That's a good gig. I mean, if you can get one of these academic jobs um, where you're not, I mean, you're not adjuncting. You're, in a, you're a professor, mm-hmm. right? Because adjuncting is, that's not good. Well, it depends where it, yeah, it depends <laughs> and what, where. The, what the gig is, yeah. Right. I guess it could lead to stuff. But I mean, financially, typically adjuncting, there's no benefits. There's none of that. But if you can get it like a steady, stable teaching job, especially if you're surrounded by colleagues and students who are that intelligent, that's a good way to feed your head and to keep yourself in the game. And then also like a, a profession that is as much as any profession can be really nicely symbiotic with the writing life. You have like windows of time and eventually like sabbaticals and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So is that something you see yourself doing for the future? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really, I mean, I'm lucky to, that I've been able to have a career teaching because um, I know it's, it's, tricky and and um academia can be incredibly tricky um i i think i'm very lucky in that i really like teaching a lot i love it and um you know i have friends who are writers who just don't like teaching and some friends who and they are and they are teachers (laughs) some yeah and um and i think that that makes it harder you know if you don't like doing it i I, I really do. I, I find it really, um, exhausting, but also energizing to 
to get to talk to students about books and writing and and I especially love teaching I like teaching graduate students too because the um you know the work is usually maybe more exciting and there's um they they graduate students tend to have a clearer sense of their own projects but I love teaching undergraduates I love the extent to which they'll take risks and um there's a, a play. It's like soft in it. play. Like they're young. Yeah. They're just starting out. Like so, what are you teaching? Creative writing to the undergrads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fun class to teach. And I think too, though, you know, the quality of the student matters in terms of how. I mean, I guess it's always. I mean, different teachers enjoy different parts of it. But um, if you're dealing with kids that really are sharp, mm-hmm. that's fun. It's really fun. It's really fun, and it's fun for me to you know, present them with published work that I really love and that means a lot to me. And then, you know, sometimes it's demoralizing if they are like, I don't, I don't like this. <laughs> You're like, I automatically just <laughs> knocked your letter grade down. You just failed. <laughs> um, so that can be sort of a bummer. Um, but, you know, more frequently they're excited and engaged and, you know, more of the story is revealed to me through our conversation. So yeah, you get something from, they teach you I yeah. mean, not to sound corny about it, but you really do. It's corny, know. but it's true. It's true. Yeah. So what are some of the books that you, uh, that, you know, that you like to share with your students? Like, are there, are, are you sharing like contemporary lit or, you know, writers long dead, some mixture of the two I would imagine. Like, but what do you, what do you teach? What do I teach? Um, you know, it, shifts um depending on the semester and the to some extent the the interests of the students and what they're writing um i love teaching alice monroe i think sometimes she's a little bit lost on them um i love antonia nelson tobias wolf elizabeth talent um william maxwell going through my your syllabus edward p jones so wonderful um I'm sorry. I'm no, blanking no, no. now. That's, that's more than most people could conjure on the spot. And then, um, you know, just in terms of influences, though, you know, you can talk about contemporaries that you really love. Like, when you look back on your writing life, um, is there a writer or two who really got you started, like, when you were young and that was, like, was taught when you were in high school or something and it, it just, like, kind of split your head open and that was it? Well, you know, one book... I mean, I read so voraciously and always had this idea that I wanted to write. But I, I do remember my freshman year of high school feeling, I was at, at Exeter and feeling really alienated and homesick and had no idea what this place was that I'd found myself in. And um, I read Tobias Wolf's This Boy's Life, and it's a memoir that reads like a novel, and it blew my mind. I mean, that book meant so much to me at that time and that seems a little odd i mean like you know just that first blush because this, you're a young girl this boy's life that story like what was it about it well you know girls are trained to read themselves into male protagonists <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, right. we've, we've had a lot of practice right, right. um no i i think the humor of it i found really enticing you know the fact that this 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 the character of young Toby, you know, was similarly out of his depth in in a boarding school situation, um, and you know had a similarly in some ways, you know, some some overlap in in the early life and um, and just the idea that 
you could write about your experience. That was, I was just going to say, that, like, when somebody gets it down, and like, there's a, obviously there are resonances, like, for whatever reason, personal connection to the story somehow. Um, but when somebody gets it down and gets it down well, and I, the feeling that I've often had with books that I've loved in that way is like, oh, it just said everything. Mm-hmm. It said everything. Yeah. Like someone did it. They're the, you know, and it's like, it's almost a little painful. <laughs> there's like, it's like wonderful, but there's also yeah. like an ounce of like, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> Great. <laughs> What's the point of me doing it? Right. Right. Um, yeah. Th- that book really mattered then and made me think about, um, yeah, like maybe I could do this, which sounds obnoxious that uh, as a 14 year old, I read this gorgeous book and was like, maybe I can do this, but it, it did, it did it did really make me think about, about writing. Um, you know, I read, oh, I read the power and the glory in high school and that, that book really influenced me too and moved me tremendously and, and has come, has influenced some of the writing that I'm, I'm doing now and in my, in my collection as well. In your novel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, I think, I mean, like, like career-wise, you're going to teach at Prince. You've got it all figured out. You're going to McDowell. You're going. You're winning awards. You're super well-educated. You've got a good teaching job. Your novel's going to be good. I pray to God. Is there anything, like, what, 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 what's, is anything going wrong? <laughs> you know, I feel like the, sometimes the writing is really going wrong. You know, it, it can, yeah. It's, certain days. Certain days. It never, it, yeah. I think I had this idea that after I wrote one book that then I would know that I could do it. And, you know, all of that horror and self-doubt and everything would, would fall away. Do you have, I mean, yeah, because like, I guess writer, there are writers of very, there are people of varying levels of confidence. Are you a confident person? Are you confident in your talent? I don't know. Well, you know, <laughs> um, I call it my godworm, where I, I, some, I sort of toggle back and forth between this, I want to be the most famous writer ever, <laughs> and, and I can do it. And then, you know, then I'm, my worm comes out, and it's like, I don't deserve anything, and I'll never write again. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I, I do think I, my, I, I sort of have to battle the godworm a little bit. There's, there tends to be more worm than god, um, but I, they're equally unhelpful. Yeah. Um, it's always somewhere in the middle. I mean, are you, are you super competitive? Like, are you paying attention to other writers and like what they're doing? Or is it more just like with yourself? It really is with myself. I'm, I'm not really competitive. I mean, I do, you know, get moments where I compare and that's, you know, not very helpful, but I, I, that's the worm. Yeah. And, and I tend not to, but I tend not to be very competitive. I mean, I dated somebody in, um, right after college who was a writer and didn't, he didn't read contemporary fiction and didn't read the book review book reviews. And because it was so painful for him because he was jealous. And I thought, I just, I, it just seems so sad. Like, like they've got to be dead. Or I'm not reading. <laughs> well, and I just, I remember thinking, you know, I was at the very beginning of wanting to be a writer and I just remember thinking, I love reading. And if this ever happens to me that I don't enjoy reading, then I, this isn't the life for me. So I, I've sort of decided <laughs> that, um, it can't be healthy to not read. Like if it's too painful for you to read anything contemporary or to read a book review, like it's time to go to the shrink. 
Maybe, yeah. Right? I mean, it, just, it doesn't seem sustainable, I guess, is maybe the better word. I don't think it is sustainable, yeah. And I and I hope that this was just, you know, a discreet time in his life. And that I, he was I, went through, to... I went through something similar when I was in film school as an undergraduate where I was like, I don't want... I don't want to watch too much because I don't want to pack my head full of all these influences. I won't be original. It was yeah, a, or lose my voice. It was, it was, yeah, it was like a yeah. dumb, it was like a really immature thing to, you know, in retrospect to say. But I think there was some of that. And it was also like a weird, like, backwards justification for laziness. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. like, I don't want to watch all this film history. You know, who needs like Eisenstein, you know? <laughs> make this up as I go. Just gets in the way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my God. So you're leaving Los Angeles soon? Yeah, I'll leave tomorrow. It's a quick trip. Did you have a good time? It was wonderful. Where do, where do you live right now? I'm between places, really. Um, it, but my car and my parrot. Um, you have a parrot? I have a parrot. Well, They're I, in Atlanta. I, thank God we got to it, but it's a, it's, I'm ashamed that it took me this long to get the fact that you have a <laughs> parrot out of you. I do have a parrot. Where did this? Where did you get this parrot? He was he was rescued from um, a family That's in a commitment. San Francisco. It's more of a commitment than... I mean, I knew it was a commitment when well, I went like into it. It's 70 years, right? They can live forever. Well, he's not... Thank God he's not that species. He, oh. He's he's a smaller parrot, and so um, he probably he has dead. 30 years max. Oh, okay. Yeah. But parrots, um, I think, are all hemophiliacs. They don't clot very well. And um, so... Does he I mean, talk? He could die any minute, really. Jesus. He's not a talking variety. He's a sun conure. Okay, what um, does that mean? He's just very beautiful. They're known as the little clowns of the parrot world. Okay. He's very affectionate, very he, beautiful. He loves you. He loves me, yeah. He spends, we we usually share a neck hole. He usually climbs in my shirt and pokes his head out. Oh, my God. And, um, do, do, do you write with this parrot on your shoulder? <laughs> um, I try not to because then he, like, bites holes in my shirt. And But sometimes I'll put him on a perch next to me wow. while I work. So is he in a cage? He's a, yeah. Okay. When I'm not home, he's in the cage. And what if he's I, not? Does he fly? Does he shit all over the house? He's potty trained. He is. Yeah. He toilet. No, I wish. Oh. No, but, but on his perch. <laughs> he's <yeah>. a genius. <laughs> Probably yeah. he could be trained to go on the toilet. Although it's hard to perch on the toilet. Seat. So, but you decided I'm going to get a pet because that's a 30 year commitment. Even 30 years is a long time. Like, well, oh. he was already like six when I adopted him. Still, I guess 24 <laughs> years. But I mean, yeah. you're like, I want to. Why? Why a bird though? I don't know many people with birds. I'm fascinated by bird owners. I like birds. I, I think we're a nutty, nutty crowd, bird owners. The bird um, people. Because, you know, birds are neurotic, and I think bird people are neurotic. Um, my sister got into birds first when she was little, and then, um, and I thought they were boring, but then I came to really love them. Mm. And yeah, he's, he's great company. He's like a, he's like a, non-verbal three-year-old really yeah. with like similar needs for attention and smart really smart and it, you know if we're laughing my partner and i um he joins in and he goes hey, 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 hey. <laughs> and if we whisper he he, he goes really yeah he's, he's so he's, he's kind of a talker but just not like the full words like you know, y- yeah yeah like he doesn't say call and response human words but he joins in every conversation wow yeah that's crazy birds are so crazy to me like you know, it's like I, I like to I like to make fun of uh, Jonathan Franzen, the bird watcher. Like the whole yeah. thing, it's like an yeah. easy, it's an easy thing to poke fun at. But um, and I was just reading about like Rivers Cuomo in the paper the other day. Like he's now a bird watcher. 
but I do like it just to kind of try to circle this back to uh, the slow and methodical and painful writing style yeah. where you're kind of slowing things down. It's like you're walking around on the planet every day. There are all these things flying all over the place. Yeah. Many of them like just be- you know beautiful creatures and they just sort of, you don't even notice them. Yeah. So I don't know. I, w- I wish I noticed birds more. Maybe I'll start bird watching. You should. I should. You should. Do you do any of that? Not really. I mean, a little bit. I bought a guide because I thought I would like to be the kind of person who watches birds. But You're, you're going to be that professor on the Princeton campus who's just pondering a... You're right. Maybe I don't want to be that kind of person. <laughs> I should get rid of that bird You'll guide. walk in on day one. It's like, <laughs> students, you'll never believe the finch I just saw. <laughs> you're right. That I, Yeah, I should not go down that path. Oh, my God. All right. So you're... And did you say you're in Atlanta? Mm-hmm. How's that? It's great. It's I town. love it. Yeah. I had no idea. I'd never really been to the South. You're like from the South. My family's from the South. I never lived there, but I grew up going down there and like all my extended family. So Where? I, Louisiana. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I just feel like a strong connection to it in terms of my roots, but I'm like the the cousin who, my, you know, my dad's job took him out. Yeah. So we were always like the weird Northerners. Yeah. And when I came down, I was, you know, I was from Wisconsin as a kid and I would come down and I had that accent. Yeah. It's since gone away, but I'd be like, yeah, we just parked a car and all my cousins are like, what are you, you know, what's that? You yeah. <laughs> so I was a bit of an, you know, uh, fish out of water down there, but it was, it was always fun. And I just, you know, as those kinds of visits accrue over the years, I just have such a deep affection for it. Yeah, it you, becomes you get a kind to, of home. Yeah, you get yeah. to know it. So, But you've lived in Atlanta for how long? Just really since September, and I've actually been traveling a lot. So I, I'm i going to be moving in August without really having spent much time there. But I do love it. I, I had all kinds of ideas about the South, you know, from just popular... <laughs> yeah, gothic novels. Exactly. And... Um, and Everybody said, oh, Atlanta, it's just so trafficy. And But the great thing about working from home mostly is... It's not an issue. I don't have to be in the traffic. <laughs> right. No, it's really neighborhoody. And, you know, there's always people out on Beautiful the Beautiful trees. It's gorgeous trees. And yeah, but hot as hell in festivals. the summer. Festivals. Festivals. Festivals are good. I love festivals. I like... I like... This is something about Los Angeles that I wish there were more of. It's like civic spaces and things that make you feel more like a part of a community or that like you're in a city mm-hmm. like at big parks like that's the thing about it is you don't get a ton of that whereas like if you're in new york and you're in central park you're like oh i'm here that's true we, yeah. li- we live together here there's no design to la or you know there are some parks but it's not the same yeah i wish more american cities had were designed around plazas and right yeah the way like cities, santa fe and, the, the way cities are supposed to be designed yeah. I mean, like to be livable yeah. And, uh, yeah, there needs to be some sort of like order that way. And I'm like a big fan of, uh, is that the is city design, even the word, or what is it called? Civil engineering. I could be missing urban, urban planning. planning. Yeah. Um, but that, and then also architecture, like, I think as I've gotten older, I've gained a deeper appreciation for the thought and the work that goes into creating those kinds of experiences for mm-hmm. people. That's a really cool thing. And how much it matters. Yeah, that's what I mean. Just the shape of the city, that what that can do to human beings. The shape of a building. Yeah. The way it makes you feel. You like walk in and you're like, oh, or you feel like oppressed, yeah. you know, and like dark all of a sudden. So um, the, the problem about it, especially when it comes to urban planning, is that it's really hard to retrofit or like be like, do over. You yeah. Because once it's all built, you're just sort of stuck with it to a degree. You can't just carve out a town square. Just flatten it and start over, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it's been really fun talking with you. 
This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad. Yeah, and congratulations on your literary deathmatch triumph during AWP. It was a thank you. A special <laughs> moment for you. It was a very special moment. And we should let people know, um, like right when you got here, before we came on the air, I was apologizing to you because right before you walked out onto stage, as there is, uh, you know, you were being introduced. I was. I happened to be standing next to you. I didn't even. You know, we had just met, and uh, you know, Adrian said your name, and I was like, "Don't fuck this up." And you looked at me, and you kind of smiled, and then walked out. And I was like, "Oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was. I don't know her well enough to be making that kind of joke. She could have been really nervous." I think. I think that's the kind of encouragement I needed. <laughs> and you but, knew me well enough to make that kind of joke. But you didn't. But you didn't really even remember it. it was, no, I was in such a state of of just abject terror. Good. That I, I don't think I heard anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was hoping I didn't trip. Thank God. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't like. And I, clearly, I didn't affect you negatively because you triumphed. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Safe trip back to Atlanta. Best of luck at Princeton, and uh, best of luck with the novel. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, that's Kirsten Valdez Quaid. Uh, Isn't she great? Her story collection is called Night at the Fiestas. It is available now in paperback from W.W. Norton and Company. You can find Kirsten online at kirstenvaldezquaid.com. I do not believe she has a social media presence. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. The one exception is that orchestral number, which is a song called Charmaine by Javier Cugat. Did I pronounce that correctly? Be sure to get the Other People app. Did you know that the Other People with Brad Listy podcast has its own official app? It's the Other People with Brad Listy app. The app is free. Get the app on your device. It's the best way to listen to this program. Uh, You get the app on your device, you download it to your device, and the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. 50 episodes for free, and then if you want to get at the archives, have access to uh, all 400 and something episodes available at your fingertips anywhere you go you just sign up for other people premium right there within the app right there within the app you can sign up for a premium subscription it costs 75 cents a month gets you access to everything 75 cents a month access to everything Uh, great way to support the show please do that If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com let me know what you think letters at otherppl.com Um, mediocrity, mediocre. The phrase uh, "stunning mediocrity" that doesn't make much sense. If we uh, accept the premise that most everything in the world is mediocre, <laughs> that mediocrity is the norm, then it should not be stunning. I think what's stunning is when people are stunned by mediocrity. Please remember that Schopenhauer was found dead sitting at his breakfast and that Heinrich Schliemann died after collapsing with an unidentified fever on a street in Naples. That's it for now. I want to thank uh, Kirsten Valdez Quaid. Go get her story collection, Night at the Fiestas, and keep an eye out for her novel, sure to be something special and thanks to you guys uh, for listening week in and week out sticking with me slogging through (laughs) it's a stunning mediocrity
Super mediocre. Very mediocre. It's an exquisite mediocrity. <laughs>